Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I'll be reading the entire chapter. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection in mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure." Do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain." Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly." 
and I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Today we continue through our series in 1 John. And we come to 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. <clears throat> Jesus was asked one day, What is the great commandment in the law? The Lord responded, you'll remember, by quoting two passages from God's law which summarize our whole, whole duty to God and to our fellow man. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That was taken from Deuteronomy 6.5. Jesus continued, This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Taken from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus concluded by saying, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I'd like to just make one observation and amplify that observation from the words of Christ that we've just read. Christ was not substituting love for the law, as if to introduce an entirely new ethical standard by which to judge our actions. Where did the Lord Himself go to find these two great commandments? He went to the law. It was the law itself that required love. Now, many churches today, dear ones, I'm afraid, are like the Gnostics of old who would cast away the law of God and wrongly believe they could then embrace the law of love. But it cannot be done. It's impossible. In fact, we find in 1 John chapter 5 that it's a contradiction to cast away God's commandments and expect to be able to love God. 1 John 5, 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep His commandments, 
For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. To the contrary, John the Apostle declares that casting away the law is in fact the definition of sin. You don't embrace true biblical love when you cast away the law. You actually embrace sin, for he says in 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. Sin is to violate the law of God. Sin is to cast away the law of God, to neglect the law of God. That is sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very uh, epitome of love, made it very clear when he said, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Even the least, even the details of God's word, of God's doctrine, of God's law is to be kept and preserved. And he who teaches it is faithful. He will be great in God's kingdom. But he who casts it away as insignificant, as non-essential, as unimportant, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Nothing, dear ones, is more clear in Scripture than the fact that love does not annul or replace the law of God. Love actually fulfills. That is, love actually makes full the love of God. The law of God actually summarizes. Not replaces. Turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Where we find that, in fact, this commandment to love is a summary of God's law. law. Romans 13, beginning with verse 8. The Apostle Paul, speaking, <clears throat> says this, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love, Paul says, is the sum of the law. It is a summary of God's law to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, a real good exercise, parents, uh, to teach your children is to, to, after a sermon, 
or after having read a book or after a Bible lesson at home to tell them or say to them, summarize what you heard. Summarize what you read. Because if they can summarize and get it to the salient points, you know they've got it. It's a very helpful tool. It's an aid for learning. It's a help for memorization to summarize something. Well, that's what God has given to us by the law of love. Not to replace all of God's commandments, but as an aid for our memory. For help in our instruction. And it is exactly this way that the law of God does summarize, does not replace the law of God. Now that being the case, that the love of one's brother is summarized or is, does actually summarize God's law, What then distinguishes the practicing of righteousness or the keeping of God's law from the loving of one's brother? If if one is actually the summary of the other, in what way are they different? If God's love and our responsibility to love our brother is to practice righteousness, then what separates, in John's opinion, as we look at the test which John has given in 1 John chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's given us two separate tests, a test of righteousness and a test of love. What is the distinguishing character of those two tests? If one is simply a summary of the other. Well, I would submit to you that the distinction between practicing righteousness and loving our brethren centers upon the concept of self-sacrifice in the biblical concept of love. Self-sacrifice. In other words, not only will you find in Scripture that biblical love always measures up to the standard of God's righteousness and God's law, But you will also find within the biblical view of love the willingness to lay down your own desires, to lay down your own time, to lay down your own abilities, to lay down your life in order to serve the one you love. Biblical love, dear ones, looks to the law of God in order to see how it can give how it can serve, and how it can help others. And without this love for the brethren, the Apostle Paul says, you are nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Turn with me for uh, just a moment to that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. At the end of the first three verses, Paul 
says, no matter how great each of these gifts might be, to speak in the tongues of men and of angels, to have the gift of prophecy, to understand all mysteries, to have all knowledge, to have faith so that you could remove mountains, to offer your body, to be burned, to feed the poor. But it, he says, after each of these verses, if you do not have love, you have nothing. You are zero before God if you have not love. You see, it is love, that self-sacrificial element that makes the practicing of righteousness a good work. As you serve God in love, putting your own desires down, and as you serve others, laying down your own desires, your own life in order to serve others, that is what makes as well the, the act or the deed or the work a righteous one before God. Not simply fulfilling the, the external standard of righteousness, but laying down your life, giving of yourself. Today's sermon may be summarized in this way, in one sentence. We know we are the children of God because we love the brethren. We know we are the children of God because we love the brethren. Now, again, I encourage you parents to take these little summary statements and to use them uh, with your children later on. Uh, I try to summarize so that I can clearly communicate what the passage is saying, so that I can understand it clearly and so I can communicate it to you. You take the same summary statements and use them with your own children so that you can instruct them as well. Now, there are three aspects of this love that we will briefly consider uh, today. First of all, the test of love. Second, the antithesis of love. And thirdly, the incarnation of love. So please turn with me, if you're not there already, to 1 John chapter 3. And let us consider this text together. We'll consider the, the very first point, the test of love. Now, the Apostle John has begun, as I mentioned last time, his second cycle through these three tests of assurance. They ought to be quite familiar to you by now. The test of obedience or the test of practicing righteousness. The test of love and the test of orthodoxy or the test of truth. Today we're going to be focusing our attention upon the test of love as it's found in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. But I must make clear again and again that even the test of love is not a means of justification before God's righteous tribunal. I want to make it absolutely clear 
that when we talk about these tests, we're not using them as a means by which to be right before God. Now, you may become tired of hearing that, but it's something that we need to continuously be reminded of. Nothing you seek to do in obedience to God can make you acceptable or make you righteous in the sight of God. This is not a means or a way for you to become more favorable, more acceptable before God, for God to love you more than He already loves you. He cannot love you more than He does already as His children. Let us never forget the words that are found in the Westminster Confession of Faith with regard to this whole area of good deeds and good works. Reading from chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, paragraphs 4 through 6. This is an extended quote, but... Give it careful attention. I think this is a wealth of information and encouragement for God's people in these these sentences. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to super arrogate and to do more than God requires as that they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. Just pause there. No matter how you may grow in sanctification in your life, no matter what heights you may attain to in this life, this portion of the confession is teaching, you can never do all that God requires. There will always be duties that you leave undone. There will always be prohibitions which you violate. None of us can reach that place where we can offer to God perfect righteousness on our parts. The next paragraph says, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them, that is between our works, and the glory to come, and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. See, all of our good works that we might do do not cancel out our other sins that we commit. But when we, it continues by saying, but when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and are unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from the Spirit. As we are able by God's grace to perform good works, those proceed from the Spirit of God, God working within us. It continues. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with, with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. And finally, this last paragraph. Yet notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him 
Your good works are only acceptable to God in Jesus Christ. Not as though they were in this life holy and blamable and unreprovable in God's sight. But that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. You are acceptable, beloved, in the sight of God's infinitely pure eyes because you have been declared righteous in Christ alone. Not because you have already been made righteous. The test of love that we're looking at today looks not at the cause of your acceptance before God, but the result of your acceptance before God. Because you are declared righteous in Christ you will love the brethren and desire to self-sacrificially serve them. That is the fruit and the evidence and the result of having been declared righteous, that you will love the brethren. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 10. As we consider under this First point, the test of love, we want to consider first in chapter 3, verse 10, that love of the brethren is not optional. We find these words, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. John makes a transition from the test of righteousness, which we considered last Lord's Day, to the test of love in verse 10. One test is clearly as significant as the other. The test of righteousness is as significant as the test of love. They go hand in hand. Neither the practicing of righteousness nor the loving of the brethren are viewed by the Apostle John as being optional in the Christian life. Just as a grapevine will produce grapes, so the Christian will produce righteousness and love for the brethren. John's style, however, in this whole epistle, but particularly as we look at this passage today, his style of writing is to communicate in bold, antithetical statements, in strong, vivid contrast so that you don't miss the point. For example, look at chapter 3, verse 6. Notice the strong contrast. This is from the sermon last Lord's Day. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. The verse that we just read does not imply that Christians do not sin, Because we read in chapter 1, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Nor does chapter 3, verse 6, imply that Christians do not yet have sin within their nature. For we read in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, 
not talking about personal sin. It's talking about sin that pollutes our nature. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And that is why, firmly fixed between 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 1.10, it's 1 John 1.9, which says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is simply making the point in 1 John 3.6 that the Christian cannot continue to live in unrepentant sin like the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning and has never ceased sinning. A Christian cannot continue to live in unrepentant sin like the devil. When he sins, he will confess it. When he sins, he will turn from it and seek God's forgiveness. That's the character of a Christian. Whereas the non-Christian cannot do otherwise but continue in his sin because he does not have access to the forgiveness of Christ. Because he does not have the desire to confess to Jesus Christ his sin and turn from his sin. He'd rather continue in his sin than repent, confess, and seek God's forgiveness. You see, dear ones, the Gnostics of John's day hated the test of love for the brethren. They hated this test because their lives were wrapped up in their own intellectual pride. They were self-serving and self-seeking to the max. This test of love nailed them right between the eyes. They were too concerned with themselves and their own salvation by knowledge. Remember, they believed you were saved by this special knowledge that came through these mystical experiences. It was a salvation by knowledge. Well, they were so wrapped up in the salvation by knowledge, they weren't concerned with loving their brethren. They weren't concerned with serving others as a servant. It's a warning, a strong warning to all Christians, all who profess the name of Christ. And intellectual pride and arrogance always leads to a self-serving lifestyle. When you are preoccupied with simply gaining knowledge, but not interested in applying that knowledge, you will not love the brethren. God, through the Apostle John, calls Christians to love the brethren He calls Christians to a self-sacrificial lifestyle. In verse 11, still under the first point, the test of love, we find that this test of love for the brethren is in fact not novel. It's not anything new. Notice what John says in verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. 
You see, this command to love one another is a part of God's historical revelation to his people. It's Mosaic. Back in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, God commanded his people not to hate their brother, but rather to love their neighbor as themselves. It's not only Mosaic, this command to love, but it's also Christolic. That is, that it is from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 13, verse 34, we find these words. Spoken the very night in which the Lord was betrayed, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, how was this commandment new if, in fact, Moses propounded this commandment In Leviticus, in what sense does Jesus say, I give you a new commandment to love one another? Well, let me submit to you, it was new in the sense that it was renewed with fresh new life through the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. This commandment came to life in a way that it had never known. When the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life, For you, when he offered his life as a substitute for his enemies. We'll say more about that later. But the third way in which this commandment to love the brethren is not new or novel is that it is apostolic. It's mosaic, it's Christolic, and it's apostolic. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. You'll remember from a previous sermon, we find these words from the Apostle John himself. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Remember, dear ones, as you consider this test of love, to love the brethren. Remember that this test of love is given by the Apostle John within an historical context. 
The church of Christ at this time was being riddled with false teachers who undermined the inspired and historical record of God's revelation that would have been given through the prophets and the apostles. These Gnostics were undermining this historical revelation altogether. The Gnostic source of truth was not sola scriptura, scripture alone, but rather their source of truth was a syncretistic mixing of scripture with paganism and uh, their own false revelations. Such heresies are always more dangerous, I believe, than pure, unadulterated paganism or secularism. Anytime you mix error with truth, it is far more potent and dangerous than just outright error. Trying to draw professing Christian churches away from true Christianity with pure paganism and pure secularism is like offering a person a bowl full of fish bones for supper. No way are we going to eat fish bones for supper. They're going to reject that outright. With absolute disgust, a person would push the bones away having nothing to do with them. But try to draw Christian churches away with paganism and secularism hidden in the midst of some biblical truth and you have a situation more akin to offering a person a piece of fish that is loaded with dangerous bones that if caught in his throat will certainly kill him. You see, dear, dear ones, it is the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's the little foxes that get inside the vineyard within the church of Jesus Christ. Not those that can't get inside because they're obviously wolves. But it's those, those little foxes that get in, in the midst of the vines that can do all of the damage. The Gnostics of old had no problem with professing Christians uniting with them, provided those Christians would tolerate their unorthodox views. The Gnostics would no doubt have even remained within the churches of Asia, to which John wrote, had the Apostle John and the leaders of the church been tolerant of their Gnostic position. Union with the Gnostics was always a possibility as long as their unorthodox views could be maintained. But there can be no such union when God's truth is the victim. For those who truly maintain biblical convictions cannot live in toleration of unbiblical convictions without condemning themselves in the same error. To tolerate evil, to tolerate false teaching to tolerate false religion is to condemn oneself. Strict theological boundaries and non-toleration of doctrinal error was the apostolic position, dear ones. Turn with me to just a few passages. 
Romans chapter 16, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. Contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Again, the Apostle Paul says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. If a brother does not walk according to apostolic tradition, withdraw from him, Paul says. He's walking disorderly. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, Paul says here, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And what does Paul say to do with those who teach otherwise to the sound and wholesome words which were delivered by the apostles? He says, from such withdraw yourself. Did the apostles work with weak brothers who could not enjoy certain legitimate liberties due to an offended conscience? Yes, the apostles certainly did work with weak brothers whose conscience was offended over eating meat that had been offered to idols. But the apostles would in no way allow that weakness in a brother's conscience to be opposed, imposed upon the whole congregation. As if that were the biblical position. In some way, the weak brother's position could not become the position of the church. See, that was what was happening in Galatia. Why does Paul take a different stand in Rome? Why does he say, you know, receive this weak brother? Because in Galatia, the whole church is being affected and is overturning and is becoming actually the position of the church and even a, a grounds for righteousness before God. The apostles did, in fact, patiently teach. They patiently encouraged and exhorted weak Christians in the faith. But they could not. They absolutely could not compromise the truth and even the details without sinning against Christ. Because Jesus had commanded them that they were to teach all things which I have commanded you. Not some things, 
Not just the major things, not just the essential things, but to teach all things that I have commanded you. And you remember again what the Lord said. Who will be great in the kingdom of heaven? The one who teaches the observance of even the details, the jots and the tittles of God's doctrine and teaching. But the one who teaches to ignore, to neglect, or even to disobey will be least in the kingdom of heaven, the Lord Jesus said. Dear ones, the Lord Jesus himself makes it clear that toleration of evil by leaders of the church is to invite God's judgment. To practice the view of toleration as the Gnostics did, who didn't want to be constrained by God's law, by God's revelation, by God's doctrine and truth, was to invite in fact, God's judgment upon his church. Revelation chapter 2. The Lord Jesus speaking to a couple churches in Asia. He says to the church of Pergamos. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. And speaking to the leaders angel of the church, the messenger of the church, the pastor of the church. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Lord Jesus says, you have those within the congregation who hold to the doctrine, a false doctrine, the doctrine of Balaam, and you permit it. You allow it within the congregation. Deal with the situation, the Lord Jesus says. Again, in chapter 2, speaking to the church of Thyatira, the Lord Jesus says, in verse 20, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. She is teaching false things and you allow it. Dear ones, whereas the position of the apostles was to be intolerant with regard to apostolic teaching and tradition, as was the position of the Lord Jesus Christ, the position of the Gnostics, was a theological, broad-minded approach. A theological toleration. They could not be constrained by a biblical revelation. John declares this love for the brethren that he gives as a test to be an essential part of the life of the church and the life of the Christian because it is revealed truth 
which you have heard from the beginning. It cannot be taken away. It is revealed truth which you have heard from the beginning. The second main point is this. The antithesis of love. Now, John gives to us another one of those very vivid contrasts. Cain, who hated his brother, and Christ, who loved his brethren. Two contrasts. Cain hated his brother and murdered him. Christ loved his brethren and laid down his life for them. Let's look at this. Under this point, the antithesis of love... Let's look at this antithesis of love as it was manifested in Cain, first of all. 1 John 3.12 Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. What did Cain do? that manifested his antithesis to love, he murdered his brother, John says. He not only murdered, but the point that John is making here is that Cain even murdered his very own brother. His own flesh and blood. God sees, dear ones, all murder as heinous and deserving of His infinite wrath. But fratricide, that is, the killing, the slaying of one's own brother, is even a further aggravation of that most heinous sin of murder. Why? Because you are bound together in the same covenant family. God clearly teaches that your responsibilities to your own family are not less, but are greater than your responsibilities to those outside of your family, to strangers or even mere acquaintances. It is not less serious for a man to be unfaithful to his wife than to his boss. It is more serious. Sins against your family are not more acceptable than sins against strangers. We can't have the attitude that, well, can't I be comfortable? Can I let down my hair with my family? No, the Word of God teaches that it is far less acceptable to God to treat your family in an unrighteous manner than to treat a stranger in that way. Galatians 6.10 You're to do good to all men, but especially to those of the household of faith. 1 Timothy 5.8 You're to provide for, especially, it says, those who are in your own household. Dear ones, let me see a man who is a gentleman in the home and I can guarantee he will sincerely be a gentleman in the church or at work, wherever he finds himself. But let me see a man who is an ungracious tyrant in the home and any graciousness I might happen to see in his life outside the home, I'm going to suspect as being mere hypocrisy. Cain killed his own brother, John says. Now, what was the origin of Cain's sin? Well, there's two. First of all, 
the wicked one. <clears throat> he was of the wicked one, John says. This was clearly a work of the devil. Why? Because Jesus says in John 8:44 that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And how was the devil a murderer from the beginning? Well, he devised the murderous plot to bring Adam and Eve and all of their descendants into death. The devil murdered the entire human race. He brought death through his temptation, through his plotting, through his devising and scheming. He brought death to all of mankind. He was a murderer, Jesus said, from the beginning. Now, dear ones, understand that the goal of Satan in tempting you to sin, therefore, is the same as it was in the case of Adam and Eve. And it, to, the reason he tempts you is the same as in the case of Cain, to destroy you, destroy all others. You know, realizing that fact can quickly take away all the glamour, if we really think it through, can take away all the glamour associated with various temptations that Satan will bring into your life and mine. As I'm tempted with that unrighteousness, when I'm tempted with that sin to understand what is the devil's plot and scheme, it is to murder me. Take all of the, the glamour away. That is what is at stake. Satan wants to kill you and destroy you. But not only was the wicked one the origin of sin, we find furthermore that Cain's own envy and covetousness was the origin of his sin. Notice what it says. Be, and why did he murder him? That is, why did Cain murder Abel? Because his works were evil. Cain's works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. You see, Cain's sin not only originated with the devil, but his sin also proceeded from within his own heart. We cannot cast all blame on the devil when we give in to his temptations. Remember, James says, when you're tempted, don't say that God tempted you. For the temptation comes from within. And you give in to that particular temptation in various stages that James mentions in James chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, until finally it issues in death. James goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 1, from where do wars and contentions rise among you? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Where do wars, where do battles, where do struggles and contentions and fights within a family, within a church come from? It comes from coveting and envying. I do not have, but I want. That's envy which if that sin is not confessed will lead to the next phase, I must have and I will have it whatever the cost. I find this example of envy to be most interesting in this case. Specifically, Cain was envious of God's approval. 
God approved the sacrifice of Abel. And Cain was envious of that approval. And Cain's envy manifested itself in coveting God's approval by his own means and not by God's means. Not by God's appointed means. You see, Cain knew as well as Abel what God had commanded that something from the flock should be brought unto God and offered in faith. But Abel, but Cain, chose not to bring that particular offering to God. Cain rather chose to approach God on his own terms, his own self-appointed terms and conditions, not according to the appointed terms by God himself. And as a result, when he saw God receive the offering of his brother, he was envious. Perhaps he thought in his mind about Abel. What a legalist! What a self-righteous snob! Who does he think he is in offering acceptable worship to God? I'll not submit myself to God's appointed worship Rather, I will strike the one who worship God as God has appointed. Dear ones, envy will bring on a direct assault on a brother or sister. You can count on it. Envy will lead to hatred and hatred leads to murder. That's the chain that the Lord lays out here. Watch. Be diligent. Be careful in your own life. When you envy the gifts and the abilities of others, when you envy their possessions, when you envy their knowledge of the truth, when you envy their holy character, when you envy their family life, and you can go on on and on, and rather than doing and as God has commanded, in order to have the knowledge of the truth, in order to have a holy character, in order to have a family that glorifies God, you simply envy and covet and then strike out at that one who has those things. Envy, discontentment, covetousness, unchecked, will lead to murder, at least character assassination. It will lead to your desire to destroy that person in your mind and in your words at least, if not in actual deed. <clears throat> and in verse 13, notice what the Apostle John says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. This antithesis of love is not only manifested in the life of Cain, but it's manifested in the world as well. The world here that John has in mind is all anti-Christ or in biblical thoughts, ideas, doctrines, or desires that come forth from man. Don't marvel. Don't be surprised if the world who holds these antichrist and unbiblical doctrines and views hates you. 
like Cain hated Abel. Don't be shocked at it. You see, we need to adjust our expectations here. That's exactly what we should expect that they would hate us. They hated the Lord Jesus Christ. They hated the apostles. They will indeed hate us if we stand for the truth. It was true in the days of Cain and Abel. It was true in the days of Noah, preacher of righteousness. It was true in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the apostles who walked upon the earth. And it's true of us as well today. Gnostics in all ages do not like to receive the true witness of Christians to the truth. And they will seek to destroy what they have to say. And then in verses 14 through 15, we find these words. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is the third antithesis of love. The antithesis of love is not manifested in the life of Cain. The antithesis of love is not manifested in the world. The antithesis of love, however, is not manifested in the Christian the antithesis of love is not manifested in the Christian because our assurance, according to chapter 3, verse 14, is this. We know, we are assured, we are certain about this fact that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. How do you know you've passed from the point of condemnation of death? where that judicial sentence of God justly rests upon your head, death. How do you know you've been taken from that particular place and placed under a new sentence of life from justification or from condemnation to justification? How do you know you've passed from death to life? One of the evidences that John gives is this assurance that we love the brethren. Whereas we find in verse 15 another assurance, and that is of the condemnation of those who do not love the brethren. It means that they still and yet abide in death. one's hatred for the brethren desires what is detrimental for a brother. And since hatred does not seek a brother's welfare, it pronounces the brother's, promotes the brother's hurt and is the very inward sin that leads to murder. It should warn us again how we should be so careful with our speech. Do our words convey that we earnestly desire the welfare of a brother or sister? If not, we have sinned, the sin of Cain, in destroying a brother's name or reputation. Even when we talk about another brother who holds a false view, are we doing so with the idea that we sincerely want to help 
that brother? Are we simply seeking to destroy that brother? Are we promoting the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Are we simply assassinating a brother's character? God help us to be more careful when we use other Christians as examples, as illustrations, in talking amongst ourselves even, that we are doing so with the idea of promoting the kingdom of Christ, with the idea of promoting even the welfare of that brother. We pray for certain brothers, even from this pulpit, that we do not agree with theologically, but we pray that God will bring them to a knowledge, a more accurate knowledge of the truth. That should be our goal, even when we speak of the errors that certain brothers and sisters may hold. The last point, very quickly, is the incarnation of love. The test of love, we looked at first, the antithesis of love, and now the incarnation of love. Look with me at verses 16 through 18 very quickly. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You see, here we find the peculiar nature of love. First of all, it's revealed in Christ, and then second of all, as it's revealed in the life of the Christian. The peculiar nature of love is that it promotes the life and welfare of the one loved, even to the point of sacrificing one's own life. That's the peculiar nature of love. This was supremely manifested in the life and death of God's only begotten Son, who for the sake of his enemies at that point in time, enemies who despised and hated God, he laid down his life nevertheless to to make them his own cherished brothers. Love was incarnated. Love was made flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we saw from our, the reading from the scripture in Exodus chapter 32 today, Moses, a picture of Christ, was willing to die. He said, blot my name out, Lord, but save your people willing to sacrifice his own life. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in the book to the Romans, where he says, let me be accursed if it means that your people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, dear ones, no sacrifice was too great for the Lord to make for the welfare of his people. He offered his own life that you might be redeemed. He gave up everything. He gave up all to redeem you and to assure you of His endearing love for you. What more could He do? What more could the Lord God do? Notice the very first part of verse 16. By this we know love because He laid down His life for us. 
This laying down of his life means that it was voluntary. No one took his life from him. He voluntarily laid down his life as a sacrifice. It was substitutionary. Notice, because he laid down his life for us. He wasn't dying for his own sins. He was dying in your place and mine as a substitute. And finally, it was redemptive. He laid down his life, his precious life, his sinless life to purchase you unto himself. This incarnation of love is also revealed in the Christian as well. And we see, first of all, in verse 17, the obligation or in verse 16, I'm sorry, the end of verse 16. And we, it says, John says, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is not a suggestion. You ought to follow the same example that the Lord Jesus Christ set before you. You ought to lay down your life for the brethren. And then we find the application in verse 17 and 18. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The saying goes, action speaks louder than words. I think John is saying that here. Not that words are unimportant. Not that words are insignificant. But the action must match the words that are spoken. There must be a sign, an outward sign, along with the word that is given. Love is, sim- is more than simply expressing concern for a brother or a sister. You remember in James chapter 2, James says, how is this really genuine faith when a brother or sister comes and says, I'm naked? I don't have any clothing. I don't have any food at all. And you say, be warm, be filled. Go, my brother. You wish them well. That's not true faith. It's not true love either. In fact, I would submit to you, it's a form of theft. To not give to a brother, to not give to a sister, is to break the Eighth Commandment when there is a legitimate need. You have stolen and robbed what belonged to God in the first place and spent it rather upon yourself than giving to the brother or sister who has legitimate need. Let me make just in closing some some observations and then applications. As we look at verse 18... All of our worldly goods belong to the Lord. Therefore, we cannot use them as we please, but we must use them as pleases the Lord. Whoever has this world's goods, where do they come from? They come from God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24 tells us. Then notice the brother who is in need and just this observation A brother's needs must be accurately assessed. A brother may come uh, to to, uh, the church and may profess to have certain needs. But as you begin to investigate, as you begin to evaluate, you may find he has more important needs than he thinks that he has. 
so we need to be very careful in assessing what is a legitimate need. One may come to, to, to the church with a great financial need, saying, I don't have any bread, I don't have any clothing, I don't have any shelter. Well, we don't want them to go hungry, we don't want them to, to be without clothing or shelter. But they may be, and what may have led to that is a financial problem in stewardship. They may also need legitimate counsel, correction, encouragement. And so God calls us as well to be wise. And notice the last observation. Love will not shut up one's heart to a brother. Regardless of the nature of the need, if you love a brother, your heart, your compassion, your affections will earnestly desire to help and promote his welfare. You will not want to destroy him. You will want to help him. Even in giving discipline and correction, you will want to help him. The application to our own situation, we have brothers who are in need of work. What can you do? Do your compassions and affections go out to them? Or are they shut up? Like turning off a faucet. Do you pray? Do you counsel? Do you encourage? Do you pass on leads to them as you, as you are able? We have families where husbands and wives need to spend time together. Need to get out by themselves occasionally. but perhaps cannot afford the, the babysitting, the, the, the money that it would cost to hire a babysitter. We can open up our homes to one another. We can use this as a means to show we care for families in our church, that husbands and wives spend time with one another. We have singles within our congregation or couples who are separated from their families. Maybe mothers and fathers who have died. And these families or these couples do not have surviving relatives. Parents. They need fellowship. We can open our homes and our hearts again. This one may be, come as a shock. We have elders who have much on their plates. In the area of pastoral care, and wrestling with theological matters. Elders, dear ones, continuously need your encouragement for us to be faithful, for us to continue to persevere. You can't possibly imagine how difficult it is as you're facing these particular trials with the lives of people. I mean, you know what it's like to, to, I'm sure, give up or want to give up in your own life. We not only have our own trials, we have the burdens to bear of many people. We need your encouragement. We need to know that you are behind us in prayer. And you can do that by your words. You can promote life and the welfare of your elders by what you say to them, by what you say to the wives of the elders and how you appreciate their commitment as well 
Their husbands are gone a lot. Look around you, dear ones, and find a way to minister to those who are in need, those brothers and sisters in the congregation. We know we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would take these words of your inspired apostle, this test of love for the brethren, and that, Lord, you would cause us to see afresh and anew. And, Lord, we are assured that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren, because we have not shut up our compassion and affection for our brothers and sisters, but because we desire to see and promote their welfare, to promote their spiritual growth and nourishment. And we seek to do so in many different ways. We ask our God that you would help us as a congregation to grow in understanding this truth and applying it more fervently and faithfully. We pray these things in Christ's blessed name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.